Superchargers, headlights, and more. With over 122 million parts, eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. to describe it it's really hard to describe the level of energy and some of it was you know anxiety because at this point as psychosis is walking out here for the very first match i am backstage not entirely convinced yet that hulk hogan is going to actually do what we discussed doing there was a lot of concern about that. And I've, you know, by this point, even I had known Hulk for several years and had gotten pretty close to him. I knew him on a different level than just a, a, as a professional and a peer, someone that I worked with. I knew him pretty well personally, and I knew what he was influenced by. I knew what his concerns were. And there was this concern, fear, whatever you want to call it, in the back of my mind that when it came down to it, there would be people around Hulk specifically his family, um, that would possibly, you know, convince Hulk that making this move and turning heel and all of that that entails uh, might not happen. So until Hulk Hogan showed up at the building, which was halfway through this show, I wasn't 100% sure he was going to show up. So while I was excited about what could be, I was also you know, thinking a lot about, okay, if it goes south, I need to make a move. I can't wait to think about it until that point. I've got to have a solution in my back pocket. So between the fun and the excitement and the buildup and the way the story had been going and all of the positive energy, there was also a fair amount of concern on my part. Well, now you said his family. I want to circle back to that. And by the way, we're talking over a hell of a match. Two of my very favorite WCW performers go out of your way to watch this one. I love everything Rey Mysterio and Psychosis ever did. This is not going to be an exception. Um, anyway, I wanted to talk about the family comment you made. I was, con- you, I'm paraphrasing. I was concerned that someone, people close to him, specifically his family, might talk him out of this, talking about the heel turn. 
we're talking about Linda, right? I mean, cause Nick and Brooke are like five and eight years old. So that's not it. it it's, it's his family, maybe his agent. It's those type folks. I mean, his wife, his agent, those type folks, not, or, or, or I just want to elaborate, have you elaborate there. Yeah. I, I mean, Hulk's agent, Peter Young, who, by the way, is a great guy, whatever I'm about to say, I don't want to make it sound like I'm disparaging Peter Young. Um, but look, Peter Young has a deep affection for Hulk Hogan, still does. Peter Young has been Hulk's manager probably since early WWF, right? And the bond between those two is very real and very close. And I respect that. <clears throat> And, and I will say that Peter Young truly has Hulk's best interests in, at heart. Uh, so I, I'm, I don't want to make it sound like Peter was selfish or concerned about himself or anything like that. But Peter Young is one of those guys that's always afraid the sky is going to fall. You know, he looks at in my experience with him, at least in dealing with Hulk. I don't deal with Peter on other projects, but... Peter was one of those guys that was always so fearful that something negative was going to happen based on something that Hulk would do um, that he, I, I was pretty sure that he was that voice in Hulk's ear. sowing, and he didn't mean to do it, but because of his affection for Hulk and his role as Hulk's manager, I was pretty pretty sure that Peter was in Hulk's ear on a pretty consistent basis, trying to talk him out of this uh, in his own way. But you know, Linda, I, I don't know, you know, Linda was all about the money. She didn't give a shit. Um, I, I, but she did, you know, she was obviously a strong influence and she could wear you down. She had a strong personality. And if Linda thought that this would be a bad financial move for Hulk, because let's face it, heels don't sell merchandise. Right. Generally speaking, clearly that's not the case with regard to the NWO. They're still making money, as we heard from Scott Hall a couple of weeks ago, uh, still getting those fat six-figure royalty checks off of NWO merchandise. But at the time, we didn't know that. Hulk didn't know that. Certainly, Linda wouldn't know that. Peter Young wouldn't have known that. Typically, you know, in the wrestling business, once you turn heel, you know, your merchandise sales go down dramatically. So I would imagine from, you know, Linda's perspective, that was a concern. But even though the kids were very young, that was one of Hulk's primary concerns. When I had gone down to Hulk's house to talk to him the year before, eight months before, whatever it was, about the idea of turning Hulk, his primary concern was the effect that it would have on his kids. It's the first thing that he brought up. Man, I've got young kids that are in school. I've got, I live in a community where people, you know, are into the Hulk Hogan character, and I'm a positive influence, and I do a lot of things for charities. And at the time, I think he had made more Make-A-Wish appearances than anybody in history. You know, I, I think John Cena surpassed that sense. But we're talking about 1996, and Hulk was really aware that a lot of those, a lot of those opportunities to work within the community and to work with Make-A-Wish and yes, to sell merchandise. Um, all of it was, he was venturing into the unknown. And even though Hulk's, you know, merchandising and, and things like that weren't as popular as it was back in the late eighties, early nineties, it was still significant. He was still getting a lot of commercial opportunities and endorsement opportunities. And he knew that turning heel would be waving goodbye to all of that. 
So there was a lot of, you know, genuine concern about some genuine issues, but the kids were a big part of it, even though they were very young. Hulk was very concerned that turning heel would have some kind of an adverse effect on his kids. And oh, wow. You know, kids are kids. Just is what it is. I can't believe that's a real thing, but I, I never even thought of that, if I'm honest. So and here is Mean Gene with the armed security guards backstage. Let's track it. Boom, right behind me here. I have security. If either one of these men would have the gall, the unmitigated gall to touch me, I would go right to a lawyer's office. They have done the damage already in World Championship Wrestling. Tony, Dusty, certainly Bobby the Brain Heenan, even you can empathize with what is going through the mind of Eric Bischoff. He's seen these two men. Apparently, anyone and everyone is fair game. Tonight, though, in my opinion, they are going to have their hands full. I was hoping to get one of the outsiders out here for some kind of an idea, some kind of word regarding who their third man is. I mean, we have had speculation in recent weeks on numerous people that could fill that particular position, the third man to join these two big men. Right now, I have this shield here. That will not be the case out of the ring during our main event, the hostile takeover match. The electricity even back here is just absolutely so thick you could cut it with the knife. Ladies and gentlemen, you are part of history, history in the making here at the Bash of the Beach. Further thoughts, let's go back to our broadcast team out in the arena. Everybody, I mean, from the start of the show, whether it's Tony Schiavone or it's Bobby Heenan or it's Dusty Rhodes, certainly mean gene everyone has hyped up what a big historic night this is how many people knew i was just about to get into that i'm glad you brought that up i think one of the reasons why you know we've talked about this from the beginning of the show it just feels bigger the energy is palpable even watching it 25 years later the intensity of it all a big part of the reason for that is nobody knew who the third man was. And if there's ever an example of what I learned from Vern Gagne, I didn't make this shit up. I was just fortunate enough to be mentored in a way by Vern Gagne and, and learned his strong view and belief of, of how wrestling should be produced and presented. Very Tony didn't know. Bobby didn't know. Gene didn't know. None of the talent knew, well, I should say very few talents knew at this point. Now, I think right around this time of the show, Hogan may have arrived backstage. And then anybody that was backstage probably was smart enough to put two and two together. But up until this night, Nash knew, Hall knew, Randy knew, Sting knew, because I had to keep him as a plan B all the way up until the time Hogan arrived. Um, Sting knew. Luger. Luger knew. So everybody knew. No. Well, they didn't know until, well, Sting did. But, I, you know, Sting, I trusted Sting. Sting, Sting, I, I wasn't worried about Sting, you know, telephone, telegraph, telewrestler. No. no, I wasn't worried that, about that with Sting. No. Sure, I'm sure, you know, people did know that I didn't think did. But they didn't know right up until that night. Cause I didn't know right up until that night. Right. And certainly the announcers didn't and the vast majority of the talent didn't know. So let's and that was the reason it worked. That's why you're feeling the energy that you feel from Tony and Bobby and Gene early on. 
You know, they didn't know. And there's magic to not knowing as an announcer. When I talk all the time, and I do, I just beat myself to death. I get sick of hearing my own voice sometimes when I talk about this, of wrestling being overproduced. One of the things that is, one of the aspects of wrestling that is the most overproduced is the announcers. They don't know. They don't know how to make it feel real anymore. They're too busy being good at what they do. And they're not good at being real. And I don't mean that as a criticism. It's a nature of the evolution of the business. It's not because they don't have the talent or the ability. And in the case of Jim Ross, you know, he's, he's, you know, he's left more talent in restaurants alongside of the road than I'll ever have as a play-by-play announcer. But when you're overproduced because you know too much and you're trying to do too much based on all of the information you have, yeah. you're not bringing that genuine feel. It's interesting to, uh, to take a look and think about how this all could have been different. Let's pick up the uh, rest of the observer right up here. However, it didn't come without major risks. Hogan's name was still a factor in buy rates, largely uh, believed to be coming from young children who wouldn't be as apt to beg their parents to buy the show to see a heel Hulk Hogan. Whatever revenue WCW merchandise brings in was put at major risk as well as Hogan was the top item seller. And clearly those numbers should drop substantially for older and longtime fans. Seeing the biggest name in American wrestling do his first turn on a national scale is going to spark interest in a big way, particularly short term. WCW officials knew that the Hogan turn had to be done right, or it wouldn't be worth the risks. And it could only be done once and long-term plans had to be finalized. There was legit fear basically up until the last day that Hogan would change his mind at the last minute, as he's done in the past, when it came to major angles that would leave him laying or doing jobs that would elevate others to a parody position. A plan B contingency idea was that sting would do a heel turn and join the outsiders largely due to the belief that too many people had speculated about Luger turning, which was the original plan. Oh, oh, there you go. There's fact from Dave Meltzer himself was never a consideration. Sorry. Or savage turning, but nobody had speculated on sting turning and the company wanted a shocking finish to the show. So Luger had turned a lot in his career. Good guy, bad guy, good guy, bad guy. So I could see that sting at this point. And I know we're going to get tweets. He'd never been a heel on a major stage. I'm not saying that he wasn't a heel for bill Watts or he wasn't a heel in Memphis. Okay. Whatever. Since he's been big time, badass surfer sting, the franchise player here for WCW, he hasn't been a bad guy. The macho man had been a bad guy. Luger had been a bad guy. Is that why sting was the perfect plan B because he was the perennial babyface. It's not so much because he was a, per- well, yes and no. Um, it was primarily because sting, you know, other than Ric Flair <clears throat> sting was the face of WCW. And, and that's why it took someone. Had it not been for Hogan, it would take someone that no one would ever have expected to make that turn. And that's why it was Sting. Dave Meltzer couldn't even get this shit right after it was over, for God's sake. It Luger was never, ever, ever part of a conversation. Where that came from, well, I know where it came from. It came from, what's his name? Is you know a figment of his, 
imagination, I guess, like so much of everything else that he writes. But it was right. never part of it. Neither was Randy. Nobody else was. It was Sting and Hogan. Those were the only two. And it was primarily because, you know, no one would have seen Sting coming. Flair and, you know, the, the conversation, I'm, I didn't even, you know, pay attention to some of his. I, it's hard for me to pay attention to a lot of Dave's comments when you read them to me. But, you know, any suggestion that, you know, merchandise sales was at risk. Fucking silly. There were no merchandise sales. It was insignificant. We made more money off of paper cups. Our percentage of the paper cups that were sold to put Pepsi and beer in than we made off merchandise. So much of that is just so, it's a fantasy, you know, whatever. Oh, restricted area. Gene Oakland, let's, let's wrap in on this. Could be good. I have been, I hate to say this, I've been eavesdropping. And behind these doors are the outsiders. And apparently they have been joined by a third man. Let's try to get out here. I must confide in you. This third man's voice sounds somewhat familiar, but it's muffled and I can't really identify it. It rings uh, in the back of my mind, but who it is, I really don't know. That's the question that people have been asking for a long, long time. Tonight, here at the Bash of the Beach, they are going to find out who will be joining these outsiders to meet Lex Luger, Sting, and the macho man, Randy Savage. Tony, I said I wanted you to stand by. All of this speculation, everything that we've heard in recent weeks, the chatter, the names that have popped up from time to time, from week to week, from day to day, from hour to hour. Tony, do you have any idea who might be the third man joining the Outsiders tonight? Uh, Gene, I, I don't have an idea. Have you heard? Let me ask you this. You've heard the voice. Give me a, give me a guess. Well, it, it, it's so muffled that I really can't identify it, but it's something that springs in the subconscious. So it's somebody that you obviously... It's somebody that we've seen, yeah. somebody that we've heard before. And, Gene, uh, Gene, Bobby yeah, Heenan. Yeah. Offer, we, those, uh, offer the, 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 the police there some cash. See if they'll talk. See if they saw who went in the door. Excuse me, see officer. See if they'll crack. Did, did you see anybody... Hey, wait a minute, Heenan. Don't get me involved in one of, one of your scams. Uh, Gene, do you know anything about Eric Bischoff? Has not a thing. We have not heard anything. We haven't heard a word, not even a telephone call. I know you've requested a telephone call. If he could have seen the broadcast earlier tonight, if he's watching the pay-per-view, you certainly think he would have got back to us. Absolutely. But absolutely nothing. Gene, ask him. Bribe them. I'll oh, offer them something. Hey, Heenan, give him a box of donuts. Off, Gene, we appreciate your work back there. I I'm sorry about that. Okay. I'll get back. I could make him talk. All right. Me and Gene Oakland talking. About the way they Why added commercials. Go back there and go here. I'm not going anywhere. Isn't it weird that they added commercials for Peacock? It is weird. So what'd you think of that? Hey, I can hear his voice. It's a little muffled. Yeah, we could have done without that one. Yeah. In like I heard him. It sounds familiar, but I don't know who it is. Well, what the fuck? You either did or you didn't. You Take a guess. We could have done without that. Didn't add anything to the show. Here's a replay, and now it's time for our main event. By the way, let's uh, we know what's coming, but let's let's talk a little bit about some of the moving and shaking going on. Uh, by the way, I do want to just add a little bit of context to what the readers of the Observer were thinking at the time. The show got seventy four point four percent thumbs up, twelve point six percent thumbs down, and thirteen percent in the middle. I'm not trying to be negative. But how the fuck 25% of fans thought this was anything other than a thumbs up is just crazy to me. No, it, it is. It, here is exactly what that was. The poll was taken amongst Dave Meltzer readers. 
Well, I'm fans and supporters. That is all the people need to know. Thank you, Baron Von Roski. It's a poll amongst Dave Meltzer readers. That's why. Should be obvious. It's time. The main event is here. How nervous are you backstage at this moment? Not at all. By this point, I was nervous an hour before this. By this point, I've gone over the promo. I've stolen Larry Zabisco's reference to the New World Order, which we covered in great detail last week. Um, I've gone through the promo with Hulk. We were kind of off in our own little office away from everybody else. Um, Hulk was calm. He was very confident. He was excited, but confident. Um, more, a little more serious than I used to see Hulk. You know, he was, Hulk was always so confident and, you know, he'd done it a million times. He'd seen it a million times. There was nothing really new in, in Hulk Hogan's world when it came to being out there and, you know, in front of a large crowds wrestling in big matches. So it, those kinds of things never really affected Hulk and the way he carried himself backstage, but he was different this night. He was still very excited, but much more serious. Much more focused. That's the best way to say it. More focused than I had ever seen him. So by this time, I was up in my the safety of my little seat, and I was 100% confident everything was going to go as planned. And now, just like everybody else, I was excited to see it go down. The original plan was to break up the Wolfpack from the NWO in early 1998, which would put... Hall and Nash in the top program working against Hogan and Savage, but Hogan nicks the plan, basically not letting them up to his level. Saying oh, it wasn't the time oh. to do an internal NWO feud. <laughs> I can't wait. Oh, Let me wrap no. this up. And immediately after started the feud, but instead of bringing Savage back up to the top level and leave everyone else clearly in secondary issues. Uh, we got a lot, as I can tell. I mean, by that's your reaction. Uh, honestly, Cassio. There's so much diarrhea in that <laughs> that I can't. I, I can't even see through it enough to respond to it. It's just from top to bottom nonsense. Did Hulk nix it? No, that's it again. That's what you, you, I don't know if you if you've ever played poker, but yes, you know if you've got a tell that everybody else can figure out you're not going to last long in poker. Right. Right. And if you're a dirt sheet subscriber, like if you're one of the suckers that are stupid enough to separate yourself from however much money a month, Dave Meltzer charges you to read his dreck. Um, then, Hey, if that's what, if, if you like that, if you're entertained by it and you like to walk around thinking, you know, shit that isn't true, but you think it is, they have at it. But Dave Meltzer's tell usually occurs in the first three or four sentences of whatever is about to follow. And cause that's his, that's his shot. That's Dave Meltzer taking his shot because of his personal animus towards any one individual or company. So when he comes out swinging right away at Hulk Hogan, because Hulk Hogan exercised his right creatively and refused. That shot is what it's the minute I heard it. The minute I knew everything else I was going to hear afterwards was bullshit. Dave is not right in his mind. Dave 
fantasizes or images certain things in his head and somehow between being able to form that picture in his head and the time he reaches for his keyboard, he believes it's true. He's not right. And this is another example of him, you know, taking that shot at, at Hulk Hogan just to get his narrative across it. And everything else that followed it was just there to support the bullshit that he said in the first two or three sentences. You said, of course, you know, a lot of ideas get thrown around at different times, but do you remember that? Being the original plan to break up the wolf pack in the, from the end of the year and early look, Here's the original plan. And there may have been kind of separate conversations along the way that were a part of that original plan. But the intent was at some point we knew we had to grow the NWO. We wanted the NWO to have its own show. We wanted WCW to have its own show. And in order to accommodate that, you've got to figure out, okay, what are we going to do with this NWO thing to make it work if we're going to move forward with that plan? Um, and that was the reason why we explored and, and in some cases attempted a lot of different ideas with, internally within the NWO, the Wolfpack it was an attempt to refresh it and expand it. That's all that it was. And were there common conversations as uh, that were part of that goal? Many number of them creatively, of course there were, but I guarantee to you, Hulk Hogan never came forward and said, no, brother, I don't want to do that. I'm nixing that. That never happened. Hulk Hogan used his creative control clause one time, one time. He never even hinted about using it at any other point in all the time that I worked with him. And Hulk, and he didn't say, hey, remember, brother, I got creative control. That never happened either. But with regard to Starcade and Hulk Hogan and Sting, there was an issue. I've talked about it before. I'm not going to talk about it again. There was an issue. Hulk felt less confident than he wanted to feel in Sting at that moment. And I understood why. So I agreed. But it wasn't a, a combative situation. There was nobody throwing down, nobody threatening, nobody calling their attorneys. It was a natural conversation that led to Hulk deciding to change a finish. And I supported that change. Not because he had creative control, but because I could understand why Hulk felt the way he felt. At no other time, no other time, did Hulk Hogan ever exercise creative control over anything? It's not to say that Hulk didn't have ideas. That's not to say that Hulk Hogan didn't press for an idea that he felt really, really strongly about, just like anybody else on that roster. From the bottom of the card up, some more than others, obviously. He only used it one time. So when I hear Dave lying, because Dave is a liar when he when he produces information like this and distributes it as fact, and this is what gets me hot, it's not his opinion. He stated a lie as a fact. He's a piece of shit, and he's a garbage writer. He's not a journalist, nothing even close. He's just a waste of flesh. And he's lying to his readers and to anybody that, that, that hears him talk about this stuff because of it, it's his own personal animus. 
So I have no respect for him. Zero respect. I stepped, well, some shit. I stepped in some shit on my way out here to the bunkhouse that I respect more than I do Dave Meltzer. <laughs> well, this is going to be fun then. Uh, in covering uncensored, Meltzer would have this to say. It's been more of the same with World Championship Wrestling, filled with turmoil behind the scenes and setting records in front of the camera and at the box office. The situation regarding six, if anything, got hotter over the past week with no explanation as to his firing other than Eric Bischoff was trying to send a message to Kevin Nash and Scott Hall. Waltman, who had approximately 18 months left on a three-year contract, was given his termination notice in a FedEx letter from WCW Vice President Nick Lambros on 3-9, and immediately his agent, Barry Bloon, opened up negotiations with the World Wrestling Federation. We've kind of hit on that. Already. Yeah, we have. All right, so he says, were you worried at any point with Waltman's release you would lose Scott or Kevin? Do you do you think that's an issue? Nope, wasn't worried about it at all. They were locked up tighter than... You weren't Trump. sending a message they, to them? And I wasn't... I told you, I explained why <laughs> I let them go. I wasn't sending... I don't send fucking messages. I don't use smoke signals. I don't drop hints. I don't use a fucking Ouija board. I don't try to cast spells on people. I just tell them right to their fucking face what I'm thinking and why. Whether it's a good situation or bad. I don't do hints. Hints are for gutless parasites. I just lay it out. (laughs) Uh, Meltzer continues, as the week went on, there was no contact between the front office at WCW and Waltman, although Waltman had been told by Nash that Bischoff had agreed to make everything right. Huh. That's not correct. Nope. <laughs> Many wrestlers. Uh, you including- know what? You know what? Let me, let me say though, if I may as a compromise, I may have suggested that if Sean Waltman wanted to come back under the terms of his, the, the deal that we had already agreed upon, that I'd let him come back, but there was no renegotiating. Yeah, you had already led the terms, like you said. You're already working with those terms, so no need to. There was no need to renegotiate. Would I, would I have let him come back under the terms of his original agreement? I probably would have, because I like Sean and he was valuable. Um, I would have done that, but I wouldn't have renegotiated. Many wrestlers, including some who would have been on the opposite side of the fence as Waltman politically, recognized the problem with firing a wrestler with a wife and two children who is rehabbing. A broken neck suffered in the ring working for the company for no apparent reason other than his friends were in a political struggle with the boss. Uh, And this was being done apparently to send the message to Nash and Hall, the latter of whom is in the midst of giving depositions in the WWF versus WCW lawsuit. I think you've covered that, that that's all a pile of shit. Yep. (laughs) Hall and Nash tried to rally the wrestlers together as a power base. The plan got to Bischoff in its early stages of formation. There were a lot of other problems that got deeper. On 3-9, there was a showdown where reportedly Hogan brought up Nash wanting him out of the company, and Nash told him point blank that he wanted his spot, and Hogan told him that he wasn't giving up his spot. Reportedly, there have been some hypothetical talks where indications were given that Hall and Nash could receive comparable money and WWF, should they be able to get out of their contract? But the idea of Bischoff releasing them is laughable because both at this time 
would be more valuable to Titan, which is sorely lacking in wrestlers that could challenge Steve Austin for the WWF title than they were at the peak of their Razor Ramon and Diesel days. But that isn't going to happen. Before we get move further, uh, let's talk about this. Do you remember this? Did Nash and Scott, did they tell them they were coming for a whole spot, Eric? <laughs> I doubt Getting it. their power base together. Yeah, I mean, geez, you know, I, it's interesting how much Dave Meltzer doesn't cover the nonsense that's going on in AEW right now. At least not, not because here he's making stuff up about <laughs> things that are going on backstage in AE or in WCW, whereas the things that are really going on in AEW, he tries to mitigate it as best he could while still covering it. The narrative is completely different. To suggest that, I mean, I can't even respond to it. It's so stupid. I really can't. It's you, just ridiculous. You don't remember busting them in their early stages of a oh, I mean, it's, it sounds so interesting the way it was laid down. I was like, wow, was it really that much drama going on? I mean, there was drama. Don't get me wrong. But it wasn't that well organized. <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was just fucking chaos. He, it he was that right well that it was laughable that you would release him. That's the only thing he got right. That would be laughable. Yeah, that, <laughs> that would be laughable. Hey, of you. Do you uh do you ever get a burr under your saddle that all these years later Vince McMahon and Hulk Hogan and Kevin Nash and Scott Hall and all these guys are making a small fortune off of the NWO, but the guy who created the doggone thing, I don't think you participate in those royalties, right? No, I, I do not, but it, you know, it doesn't, but look, I, I've, I've, I've made some really great decisions that have benefited my family. I've made some decisions that weren't so great. That didn't benefit my family. Um, and I made those decisions. I made choices. Um, and, and I, I live with them and I don't regret them. Learn from them, try to make sure that that kind of thing never happens again, but I don't, I don't sweat it. I I'm grateful. I'm happy for the other guys, including WWE that's making money off it. It makes me feel good when I see stuff, when I see merch on TV, it makes me kind of chuckle at myself a little bit. Um, and if that's all I get out of it, I'm cool with that because I put myself in the position and made the choices I made to, to be right where I'm at. And I'm don't regret any of them. Let me, let's remove you from the equation. Do you think that that system needs to be rectified for other folks? Is there advice you would give? to someone, or is there commentary you can add just to the, the, as I said, the system that the guys who really create a lot of this, I mean, when you think about professional wrestling in the context of it being like really any other form of entertainment, you know, a TV show is going to go off the air, a, a movie's going to finish up. There's going to be a roll of credits at the end. That doesn't happen in professional wrestling. And a lot of people have not talked about that and given it enough conversation. And I can't think of many people who have been on the, uh, maybe the short end of that stick more than you specifically with regard to the NWO concept and brand and licensing, et cetera, et cetera. But again, I want to have this conversation where it doesn't feel like, oh, woe is me. Cause that ain't really your bag, baby. So chat me up from just, uh, removing yourself from the situation and, and having some commentary on the way wrestling handles that right now and whether or not it should change. Happy to do that. And this is why I don't get a burr under my saddle because of, of, of what I'm about to kind of, I guess, share in terms of my perspective. But here are a couple facts that 
you know, people that think about this and talk about this need to kind of keep in mind as you're evaluating the situation, so to speak. Number one, when I created the NWL, when I was president of WCW, I was an employee. I was an officer of the company. I wasn't talent, although I was on camera. There was no part of my contract that treated me separately as a talent. So I didn't have a lot of the benefits that talent had in terms of sharing in merchandise revenue, number one. Just like talent didn't have benefits, they didn't have stock options. By the way, cashing over a million dollars worth of stock options at one point. Talent didn't get that. Just like I don't get merchandise royalties. But you can't be an officer, especially of a public company, and and, and benefit and, and with all the things that come with it. You know, I was probably... I, I, you know, I, I can't qualify this, so I'm making a general statement here, but I'm, I was probably one of the higher paid executives at Turner, relatively speaking, in terms of being a president of a small division of the company. My salary was significant from a corporate perspective, not from a talent perspective, it wasn't. I didn't get paid as a talent. Now, here comes the choice. Here's the fork in the road. Was there a point in time when I went from the announcer to the executive producer to a, a, a vice president to a senior vice president to an executive vice president to a president? Because I covered all those bases over the course of a couple of years. It, was there a point in there where I could have said, well, pump the brakes. I think I'm going to be a consultant and a talent and benefit from that relationship because that would have provided me the opportunity to participate in royalties and things like that. Could I have done that? Sure, I could have. I don't know if I would have been successful or not, but I could have taken that position. I chose not to. That was my choice. Was there a point when we were at our very peak and I was renegotiating the last contract, not the last one to come back, but the one previous, could I have negotiated for some participation? In the NWO, I sure could have. Would I have been ex- successful? It would have been unprecedented, I think, within Turner Corporate to have an officer of the company with all the benefits that come with it to also participate in a talent pool stream of revenue. would have been unprecedented, but I probably, I would say I'd have a 60, 40, 70, 30 shot at making that happen. And I did think about it because I was spending so much time on camera. And, and at first to me, it was all incidental. It was all, well, that's just part of the job. I've always been on camera. I was, I was an officer of the company. I was, I was an executive vice president or a president when I was doing play by play. And this is just another version of that. <clears throat> that was my point of view, but there was a time when I went, Hmm, I wonder if I could get a piece of this action, but I chose not to, not because I, lacked the confidence to go in and ask for it, not for any other reason other than I didn't want to put myself in a position in a negotiation where I was negotiating for an unprecedented kind of benefit. It's just not who I am. I'm, And I guess you could argue that maybe I should be, and maybe that's a flaw in my 
career arc, but I'm good with it. I just don't want to be that guy. I've never wanted to feel greedy. I've always believed, you know, I think the first, first person I heard this from was Jason Hervey. And I think he got it from, from his uncle. Um, pigs get fat and hogs get slaughtered. And I'm good being a pig. I just don't want to get slaughtered. So I've always been a little conservative when it came to what I asked for and how hard I push for things. I don't know. It's just interesting that the guys who come up with the ideas don't participate in their creations, but the guys who, uh, play it out on camera do It just feels weird. To but me. again, but again, those same guys that played out on camera, they don't have, they don't have a lot of the benefits that I did that they would have liked to have, by the way, any one of them would have probably liked to have had, you know, the stock options that I had. Well, no, I'm, I'm with you, but, but, I'm, paid with, but they didn't get that either. So it's a, it's a balance. It's a trade-off, man. I'm, I'm not arguing any of that. I'm just saying if this was a, if this was a Hollywood production and this is all through the, the screen actors guild and there's unions involved, et cetera, et cetera, it would have been positioned differently. And I'm not trying to have a union conversation. I'm just saying it's interesting to me that, uh, wrestling has not handled really, it. not really, man. When, when you sell it, when and I've been through this, Dozens of times when Irving and I created a show and oftentimes it was like an idea pops out of your head and makes its way to your mouth and it's out there and you start building on just an idea and you keep building it and keep building it and keep building it till it can become a tangible presentation that you make to a network and you go in and you sell that idea to a network you sell that idea to a network. Once a network buys said idea, guess who owns all of the rights, including merchandising. So you, it's the same thing. Now, if you're a network executive, you're not benefiting. There's nothing in your contract that says you get a percentage of royalties from uh, brands and programs and characters and so forth that you create. Now, if you're a network executive, now, if you're a writer, or you're a director, depending on your level of success in the industry and the amount of stroke you've got, quite honestly, um, you can negotiate for those things, but you're not being paid as an employee of a studio or a network. They're just two different worlds. And I guess I'm not trying to justify or take a position. It's just, that's kind of the way the entertainment world works. If you're an actor, Sure, you get a piece. You get a piece of a lot of things, and 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 often those big pieces or, or small pieces of a lot of things end up being absolutely nothing if it's a flop, <laughs> you know. But those are the risks you take and the choices you make when you get involved in the entertainment industry. It's, I, I I just don't think it's fair to say if this were any other form of entertainment, you know, someone like me in the position I was in would be able to benefit in ways that I didn't. Because it's, you know, when Jason and I sold the show, you know, you, you would, you, you, there was a little clause at the end of the agreement that talked about back end and everybody, nobody spent a lot of time negotiating that because everybody knew it was a figment of your imagination. There was never going to be any back end, no matter how successful something was, it wasn't, there was not going to be back. 
back end. And that's just the way it is. You take an idea, you take a concept, you create it, you sell it. In my case, I sold my services that included an idea. But once you sell it, you sold it. You know, you can't sell your house, take a check, and then come back 15 years later and say, hey, you sold your house for 200% more than, you know, you bought it for. I want a percentage of that. You sold it. It's over. Say goodbye. Move on. Let my family save your family some cash. You don't need perfect credit. You don't need money out of your pocket, but we will save you money. It's not a matter if, it's a matter of how much. Save with Conrad.com. So Eric, I don't know what I expected, man, but Kevin Nash proves once again, he is uh, one of the coolest dudes to ever get into professional wrestling. You know, you and I talk about that sometimes that there's just certain guys in wrestling that are cool guys like Conan and Kevin Nash and man, it doesn't feel like cool ever gets old, right? No, it doesn't. And it doesn't change in their case. You know, Kevin is much, he, he's very much today. Like he was 25 years ago. This is not a new Kevin Nash. This is, this is the Kevin Nash that I've known since the first day that I met Kevin back in 1991. He's just, he is what he is, baby. Well, it was great to, uh, to spend some time today talking about the good old days of the NWO. And of course we touched on some not so great days, but by and large, man, the, uh, the imprint and the impression that the NWO has left on professional wrestling. I just don't think, man, I don't see that phasing out. I don't see it getting old. I don't see it fading away. I mean, it stood the test of time and here we are 25 years later, those shows still hold up. The merch is still flying off the shelves. There's no end in sight for the NWO. It turns out as cliche as it is, that shit really was for life. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I woke up this morning to do this, uh, this additional podcast work with you and I'm going through my social media and I'm seeing pictures of Ric Flair and Hulk Hogan at the uh, big collectible card show in Chicago over the weekend. And of course, Hulk's wearing his NWO merch. He's not wearing Hulkamania merch. He's not wearing the Hulkster merch. He's wearing NWO merch. It is still very much alive. And of course, you watch SmackDown or Raw or AEW, and you're still going to see that merch out there. So yeah, it, it evidently it is for life, at least in terms of revenue. It's still still churning. David writes or has said there was a lot of hatred, and a lot of people got so pissed off. I remember telling one wrestler, and I'm not sure who it was. It wasn't Bam Bam Bigelow, but it was someone who hadn't ever been the champion before. And he was just so pissed. I was like, I don't know what to say, man. You know, that was my first inkling of, of sort of how upset people were going to get. And obviously I get it. These people dedicate their lives and I have nothing but respect for wrestlers to this day. I haven't taken a dime for wrestling. I get it. I've just been training for a little over a month now and I get it. It's painful. It's intense. It's a ton of hard work. These people go in and in and out every day, working on themselves and working on their craft. So I get it. I've always respected the business and I just sort of had an opportunity that I think a lot of people would have made the same decision if they were in that situation. It's sort of a a dream come true for me. So I was like, yeah, this is amazing. Do you remember the reaction from other wrestlers maybe being upset? Not really. And, and I think that's largely because. Nobody from a, from a talent and, and even from an employee's point, you know, a WCW employee point of view, nobody was really quite sure of what my role was. I mean, it wasn't really made clear. Brett Siegel didn't come in and, you know, prior to me coming back to WCW and say, okay, this is Eric Bischoff's new role. So, you know, 
I don't know what, six months maybe had gone by since the time I had left to the time I had come back. There wasn't a clear communication as to what my new role was and how I was really working within WCW. So people were off balance. They weren't really quite sure. Was was I coming? I think in the minds of many people, I was coming back to run the company because that's what they were used to. I'd been doing it since 1994. And to have me back, they either consciously or subconsciously assumed that I was the guy again. And I wasn't. I, I wasn't calling shots. I was making recommendations. I was trying to manage Russo's creative process. I was trying to work with Brad and 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 people within Turner Broadcasting at a higher level to make things all fit together and work on a synergistic basis, which was the, the mission at the time, the mission du jour, if you will. Um, but I wasn't calling the shots. But the talent didn't know that. Wrestlers didn't know that. I mean, if, if the employees didn't know it, certainly people that would show up, you know, once a week or maybe twice a week if they were on Nitro and Thunder – they certainly wouldn't know it because they were so far removed from the inner workings of, of Turner Broadcasting. They they couldn't have found the cafeteria. They couldn't they <laughs> they couldn't have found a cup of coffee in the CNN Center. More or less, understand what was really going on inside the walls. So there was just a lot of uh, a, a lot of people that just weren't sure what my role is. And as a result of that, people were a little reluctant to express their opinions to me. That doesn't mean that they didn't express them to each other or to David or to others, but when I would walk in a room, uh, they would usually sanitize their thoughts and, and words to, to the to the extent that I was a hard time, I had a hard time reading them, but I never sensed it. I'll, I'll tell you what, and people can rewrite history all they want. They can remember things the way they choose to remember them to make themselves feel better or smarter or clairvoyant, whatever it is people need <clears throat> to do to get through their days. But there was a general sense, at least around me, of enthusiasm when it was all over. But if there was people that were pissed off, whether it was Bam Bam Bigelow or somebody like you know of his stature backstage, with regard to David, I wouldn't have seen it, and it, I, I wasn't aware of it. Even though a lot of people hated this, David seemed to be embraced by Ric Flair. David would recall Ric Flair at one point put his arms around me and said, "Hey guys, he's one of us," and that made me feel really great. Arquette learned about winning the title the afternoon of the Thunder Show when the idea was first formulated, and at the time was asked to keep it through the pay-per-view. In an Alex Marvez interview, he said about the offer, I said I felt all right, but it did feel kind of weird. Obviously, I don't deserve it. These guys are so skilled, and it takes so much athleticism and gymnastics and strength, not to mention all the acting and stuff that goes into it. It's just really hard. And Arquette would acknowledge that he learned wrestling from Canyon, DDP, and, and Shane Helms in a ring at the warehouse where they were practicing for the movie Ready to Rumble. And he said he messed around when the ring was up while they were doing the movie. And after the Syracuse show where he won the title, he was buying food and drinks at the bar for everyone, not just the wrestlers, but fans and hangers on. And unlike other celebrities who've been involved, he's very well liked by the wrestlers, even the ones who didn't think using him in that way was a smart idea. It's also written that Arquette was splitting his earnings from doing pro wrestling to the family of Owen Hart, Brian Pillman, and Darren Drozdov. And I think that's something that sort of flies under the radar, but whatever WCW was paying him for all of this, he kept none of it. Does that not speak a lot to the character of David Arquette? 
It, it certainly does. And for our listeners, <clears throat> uh, I'm going to be doing a interview with David Arquette for adfreeshows.com slash Patreon, um, our paywall counterpart for this show. And it's going to be a video interview, so I, we couldn't do it on this podcast, obviously. But I'm going to spend an hour or two hearing from David his perspective and what he was really thinking and what he really went through. But I think it's important, and we'll get into it more uh, on adfreeshows.com. Uh, I'm actually going to do the, the uh, I'm, I'm going to record the interview later on this afternoon. But I really want to dig into that because one of the things that I learned about David subsequent to, to all of this, and I've, I've stayed in contact with David over the years. We're, we're, we're good friends and, you know, we, we, we do stay in touch. Um, David truly loves wrestling and, re- and not only loves it from a fan's perspective, a lot of people love it from a fan's perspective. David has a sincere respect for it. And I think it comes from being as an actor, being able to recognize just how much talent has to put into their characters and has and and how much of a challenge it is to perform in front of a live audience. Um, and he's not shy about talking about it. So we'll we'll dig into that more, but I, I think it does reflect a tremendous amount of respect that David has always had for for the industry and and still does to this day. David uh pins you for the title. You ever think about doing what Russo did and making yourself champ sometime? No. No. Then look, I didn't have nearly as much heat in 2000 as I had in 96 and 97 and 98. But I I still had some. I probably had half the amount of heat and it was probably kind of a Pavlov's dog reaction more than it was real heat. Uh, and I recognized that then, and I certainly recognize it now, maybe more so now. Um, but it was, in, I was in, I was the most likely candidate to do, to, to do the job. Had it been, you know, Paige or anybody else doing the job that, that would have been too far in my opinion, but what is the harm in pinning a figurehead? What, what's the harm? There is none. And, and people that want to kind of fabricate this, as they've said, the most prestigious title in our sport. First of all, it's not a sport, motherfucker. It's scripted entertainment. So right off the bat, you lose me. But you know, the most prestigious title in our sport. It's interesting how guys like that will all of a sudden revert to that very traditional total respect for the sport. for the sport, for the industry when it's convenient, but at the same time, we'll give away finishes. (laughs) Yeah. We'll talk about, you know, the internal workings of a business they know nothing about and we'll expose the industry in every other way. But God, if you do something that disagree with creatively, they'll, they'll immediately latch on to the traditions of our sport and the most respected title. Well, look, it's a, it, it is the world title is a prop. It's probably the only thing that I agree with Vince Russo on. It is a tool. It is a device. It is a stake. It is something to aspire to that's used as a device in the creative process to create conflict. That's what it is. It doesn't represent actual athletic supremacy or skill set supremacy. Now, I'm not saying that when Drew McIntyre 
you know, became the WWE champion, that he didn't deserve that. I'm not saying that at all. He did deserve it because of his work ethic, because of his ability to connect to the audience, because of all of the skill sets that he's developed and the commitment that he's made. And probably I'm going to go out on a limb here and suggest that the company has confidence in Drew to represent the WWE on a commercial basis at a very high level. That's, that is a tremendous amount of respect it's worthy of a tremendous amount of respect, I should say, and it is an amazing accomplishment. But it doesn't necessarily mean that Drew McIntyre could beat Brock Lesnar in one-on-one. It doesn't. And and it, it, you, you kind of have to remember that the goal of the WWE, the goal in AEW, the goal in Ring of Honor, the goal in Impact Wrestling, the goal in NWA – is to create entertainment that people enjoy and will come back and watch. And sometimes you have to do things that are different than what a traditional you know, wrestling fan would expect or a writer would want to write about. So you know, I, I, I take exception to some of this, not on a personal basis. Putting the title on David Arquette was Tony Schiavone's idea, as I just found out. The rest of the world maybe knew it, but I didn't until this this podcast. And it was, you know, and, and I went along with it. I'm not saying I didn't have anything to do with it. I did. I approved it. I was in the role that I was in at that particular time was to oversee, to act as a filter, to act as the liaison between Turner Broadcasting and WCW. And putting the title on David would not have happened had I not allowed it to happen. But nevertheless, yeah, as untraditional as it was, he beat a fucking 48-year-old fat guy that wasn't a wrestler. Who cares? Who the fuck cares? Did it diminish the title? I guess in the eyes of some fans, it probably did. Did it make people, you know, so disgusted that they were going to quit watching wrestling or quit watching WCW? Maybe some of them did for a while. But we were losing audience anyway, and we had to roll the dice. We had to do something to kind of re-energize WCW. And mainstream media was one of the go-to you know, formulas that we had used successfully in the past to help do that. So whatever. I, I just – I really don't understand the indignation of somebody like David Arquette beating someone like me for the world title. I would get it if he beat Haku – or he beat Bill Goldberg, or he beat Ric Flair. Or Tank shit. Abbott. Or Tank ha- Abbott. Or Tank Abbott. Well, no, but Tank went <laughs> uh, 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 Two different things. But half of the people that bought a ticket to watch the show in that arena could have beat me in a real fight at that point in my life. It wasn't that big a deal. Let's talk about what happens. The next night on Nitro, you come out with New Blood and Arquette, and he said, Paige, uh, are you... <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is going to be good. Whoa, way to set me up for the fall. Okay. Come on. We want Bring it on, big man. Bring it on. And sinker, just like all these morons in the arena and all the internet wrestling experts who thought it was such a disgrace to put the WCW World Heavyweight title on Mr. David Arquette. And I did it for one reason only to screw you royally. Of course, Paige ends up coming out and hits uh, David with the diamond cutter. And in the Nitro book, there's some quotes from guys. Uh, about the, the title win, 
DDP would say putting the belt on David Arquette, stupidest thing ever. I've never taken more shit from anything than that. Eric had just come back in and I know he was trying to work with Russo. I love Vince. Now me and him are buddies again, because we let shit go. There's no use to holding on to it, but that was Vince's idea. And it was a bad one. Really bad. It is what it it's is. Tony Schiavone's idea. We got to call page and tell him. I had plenty of ideas that weren't great ideas, but none as bad as this one though. Whenever I hear those guys who bust David's balls, I tell them David only made 10 grand on that payoff and he gave it all to Pillman's widow. He gave it all to her and that changes people's viewpoint on it. So I tell people, if it was you, you wouldn't have done it. Fuck you. You would have cut your buddy's throat to get that spot. David was just one of the guys who got that spot. It was really stupid though. And Kevin Sullivan says when we were in Florida, Eddie Graham had two rules. One was that the faces and heels couldn't be seen together. And the second was if you lost the fight in any public place, you were fired. Guys that wanted to be wrestlers used to get beaten up by the pros. Guys used to leave with broken noses and broken faces. And one time they beat a hopeful so bad. They stripped him of his clothes. I'm not condoning that, but David Arquette winning the world title. Boy, Scott Hall never even won the title. Scott Hall never won the world heavyweight championship, but David Arquette did. Can you tell me what's wrong with that? Looking for a great mother's day or father's day gift idea. I was, and I found it at paint your life with paint your life. You'll get a hand painted portrait created to fit almost any budget. And it's a great gift idea for your mother, your father, or both. You say Paint Your Life transforms your photos into a one-of-a-kind, beautiful, hand-painted portrait created by professional artists. You upload anything you can imagine. You can even combine photos. You'll pick the artist, the medium. You can even customize the frame. And you can receive your painting in as little as two weeks. You can give the most meaningful gift you've ever given at PaintYourLife.com. And there's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money's refunded, guaranteed. And right now is a limited time offer. Get 20% off your painting. That's right. 20% off and free shipping to get this special offer. Just text the word weeks to 87204. That's weeks to 87204. Text weeks to 87204. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Message and data rates may apply. See paintyourlife.com slash terms for details. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. Was that a question to me or is that just that's a, a, that's a hypothetical from him? Russo, of course, defends it. He says, one of the first things that got the WWF over was the unpredictability of it because things were starting to happen that you would never in a million years think would happen. So basically on a week to week basis, you had to tune in in order to see what was happening to me. David Arquette was one of those instances. Number one, it's, it is a big part of the story. The David Arquette thing is somewhere. And Eric and I knew that from day one. And number two, it got people talking about WCW negative or positive. They were talking about WCW again. And that's exactly what we needed people to do. Nobody has mentioned this, but before nitro, somebody hands me a USA today. And there it is right on the cover of the entertainment section. It says David Arquette winning the WCW title with a plug for nitro tonight at 8 PM. Well, that kind of exposure would have never happened without the angle. Sid Vicious, who was in ready to rumble, said he didn't see the problem with David being the champion that everyone else does. Sid said the territory was already on his ass and he didn't think this could make it worse. He didn't think it was that bad of an idea. 
He said, by that time, Russo and Ferrara had already made a joke out of everyone else. So what's one more jerk going to hurt? Scott Steiner thought it was a slap in the face to the wrestling business and fans. Flair wrote in his book, how did I feel about Arquette as a champion? He had a hell of a lot more character than some other guys who wore that belt. And Bobby Heenan said in Flair's book, when I found out they were putting the belt on David Arquette, I replied, is Zsa Gabor sick this week? That's the way it was in WCW. This is a company that had Buff Bagwell team with his own mother. It's like hee-haw down there. They might as well have had Buck Owens picking at his guitar while wrestlers jumped out of corn. <laughs> now that's funny. That's who wrote that? Bobby, who said that? Bobby Heenan. God damn, that's funny. I miss Bobby Heenan. Let's talk about something that I found interesting and significant, and that's the savings I found with Rocket Money. That's something I learned in 2023 that I want to keep going in 2024. I'm such a big believer in this. And I got to admit, I thought I was on top of my finances. I thought I had it figured out and I didn't think I had any leaks. Turns out I was wrong. I mean, have you ever taken a look when you log into your online banking and you think, man, I thought I had more money than that. Well, you were supposed to, but between all the streaming services and fitness apps and delivery services and parenting apps, there's all these endless things we seemingly sign up for. And a lot of times forget about it. I'm guilty of this. Rocket money helped me find out what subscriptions I'm actually spending money on. And man, it was eye opening. I had them cancel the ones I didn't want anymore. Just like that. Rocket money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending and helps you lower your bills. You can see all of your subscriptions in one place. And if you see something you don't want, you can cancel it with a tap. You never have to get on the phone with customer service. You don't have to send emails back and forth. Oh, and check this out. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and help negotiate to lower your bills for you. Oftentimes by up to 20%. All you got to do is take a picture of your bill and rocket money takes care of the rest. Rocket money has over 5 million users and they're helping save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Listen, this is the real deal. I've signed up for streaming services that my wife signed up for. We both signed up, but we watched TV together. There was another account that existed for years before we discovered rocket money. The same thing. I signed up for DAZN to watch a fight. Well, in order to watch the fight, you had to sign up for the monthly service. I never watched it again. After that one fight, I was paying every single month. I was saving hundreds of dollars all because of rocket money. You can too. So if saving money is going to be like a new year's resolution for you, let me give you a little pro tip. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash 83 weeks. That's rocketmoney.com slash 83 weeks, rocketmoney.com slash 83 weeks. And man, do we have a lot to unpack today? We're going to get in our way back machine and talk about a show that happened 20 years ago. And this, I believe is an interesting show to talk about because it's one that you were watching from the outside, looking in just before you came back into the company. Of course, we're talking about super brawl 2000. It went down on February 20th at the cow palace in San Francisco. I guess this is technically super brawl 10 somewhere along the way. You guys, uh, decided to stop, uh, numbering them like that. And this one is super brawl 2000. And this is much different than the super brawls we've seen before. For starters, it drew 5,538 paid 3,031 comps. 
Uh, the cow palace gate here is 177 grand and only 38,000 in merchandise. These numbers are a stark contrast from when the NWO was up and running hot and heavy just a few years before. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I I looked at the crowd and of course the cow palace is an older building, so it's easy to make it look pretty decent. Uh, just the way the building is configured and the lighting and so forth, the, the, the crowd looked pretty good, but that's a, that's a pretty soft number, you know, going into this super brawl. No doubt about it. It's a very soft number. Well, and WCW is reeling in a lot of ways at this time, you know, both creative and attendance. Well, ratings, I mean, pretty much every way a wrestling company could be hurting. That is what is going to describe WCW as we head into the year 2000 here, the Monday night war, while still technically ongoing, it's really been over for well over a year at this point with the WWF firmly establishing their dominance. Uh, but one of the biggest hits came just a few weeks prior to this event when the radicals walked out, of course, Eddie Guerrero, Dean Malenko, Perry Saturn, and the newly crowned world champion, Chris Benoit all left WCW for the WWF. And when that happened, you weren't there, you were home. what did you think about all these guys taking a stand and, and making a mass exodus like this really the first time that we would see not one guy jump, but a lot of guys jump, multiple guys jump. Yeah. And I was trying when I, you know, I knew we were going to do this show before I left for, uh, Qatar and tried to, you know, patchwork together a timeline in my memory of exactly, you know, when I had left, of course I knew when I had left, but when I had come back and when more importantly, as it relates to this show, when I first really started talking seriously to Brad Siegel about possibly coming back to WCW after I was technically, technically called up paid or played, which is a legal term within the contract. But once you know, once if if someone is under contract and there's a pay or play provision in that contract, once they are deemed to be paid, they don't have to play you, but you can only pull that trigger once. It's not like they could send me home, say, okay, we're going to exercise the, the pay or play option in your agreement. And then once that option is exercised, uh, they can say, no, I changed my mind. We're going to bring you back to work. It, it was one and done. So... I was technically still under, well, not technically, I was legally still under contract to WCW when I got that call from Brad Siegel. And in terms of the timing and and referencing to your question and context, uh, I was on my way home to, uh, to Atlanta, actually, from Wyoming. I had my own plane at the time. And I had flown, Lori and I flew up from uh, Atlanta, picked up my brother and sister in Minneapolis, and then we all flew together to Wyoming to watch the Super Bowl. And when I returned on that flight to Minneapolis to drop off my brother and sister, Lori and I decided to just spend the night in Minneapolis. And we went to an Applebee's or Chili's, whatever it was, uh, near the hotel where we were staying. And they had Nitro, it was a Monday night, they had Nitro on, excuse me, Monday Night Raw on in the restaurant where we were eating and you know, I couldn't hear anything, but I was kind of watching it out of the corner of my eye and not kind of paying attention, but not really paying attention. The television monitors were far enough away where I couldn't really tell ideally what was going on anyway. And then out of the corner of my eye, I saw the reveal uh, of when the radicals showed up 
And I, I stared at the television and it was weird. You know, it was just, I don't know how to describe it. I guess it would be like, you know, you're, you're seeing your ex-girlfriend out with her new boyfriend, you know, for the very first time in public or something like that. It was kind of, it was strange, you know? And I must've been staring at the TV long enough that Lori said to me, she goes, what are you, what are you staring at? And I, I said, look at that. And of course, Lori did, she didn't know what was really going on. She wasn't paying close attention. And I told her, she said, what are you thinking? And I said, I'll be getting a phone call soon. And I, I, I the words just rolled off my tongue. I hadn't thought about it. I didn't want to get a phone call from Turner. I, I, I you know, I was in my rear view mirror. I had two or two and a half years left on my contract. I was good. You know, I didn't, wasn't thinking about anything, but the words just rolled off my, my tongue in an instant. And literally we, we, we got back to uh, Atlanta probably a day or two days later, we took our time getting home. And sure enough, after being home for about two or three days, I got the phone call and um, premonition or whatever. Um, Brad, it was Brad Siegel asked me, you know, what, you know, in a very casual way, what are you up to? What have you been thinking about? What are your plans for the, you know, in a, in a roundabout way, you know, trying to feel me out to see if I'd be willing to come back. So that was that period of time between whenever the Super Bowl was in 2000 and probably, oh, 10 days later, a week later is when I probably had my first serious conversation with Brad about the possibility of coming back. So I wasn't here. I wasn't in WC. I shouldn't say here. Um, I wasn't in WCW for this pay-per-view. I wasn't really a part of the buildup or anything, but there were some conversations taking place right around this time. The Super Bowl in 2000 went down on January 30th from the Georgia Dome. So everybody in Atlanta was probably, uh, on the hype train for that, but you somewhere at a, uh, a casual dining restaurant knew what was coming. Uh, we should also mention that, uh, you're going to wind up landing back officially, at least on camera in April. It's good to know that you, know, you had at least been talking about it. Let's talk a little bit about where the business had been and, and, and all of that in more recent years. We're here in January. Your average attendance in 99, uh, in January of 99 was 8,661 fans in February. It's 8,814 fans just a year later here for the pay-per-view it's 5,538 paid. So a big decrease here in a major way. Uh, most of the decrease of course, happened in the second half of the year, the nitro rating would decrease from a 4.47 average in 98, where it actually beat the WWF on average for the year to a 3.66. So an 18% drop. Uh, but then the, the real serious drop happened, uh, in 99 where you fall an average of 0.93, uh, to a 0.55. Uh, no, I'm sorry. That's with buy rates. So buy rates are, are going to go down 41% major, major dip. Also the uh, house show uh, business down as well. You're selling out 15% of your house shows in 1999. When you compare that to 1998, roughly half 49% were sold out just everywhere you look, it feels like this business is circling the drain a little bit. So it makes sense to me that the brass said, Hey, uh, who was running this thing when it was at its peak and can we get him back? Uh, we've talked a little bit about how you knew it was coming, but Lori had a unique perspective, uh, Mrs. B because she was there to see you during the good times and during the bad times and just how stressed out you were and how not fun it was and how it had to affect you personally. 
What did she think when you got the call? Was she happy? Was it vindication or was she dreading that? Oh man, you're going to get back into that rat race. It was, it certainly wasn't vindication. She wasn't happy. Neither one of us are kind of built that way. Um, you know, Lori's always been really supportive of anything and everything I've ever attempted to do. <laughs> um, but she was concerned also. She did, she did, she did see a lot in terms of what I went through starting in late 1998 and certainly through 99 until I left the company in September of 99. And it was ugly. You know, it was, it was not a pretty sight. And I think she was relieved when I finally left Turner. I know I was, uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm certain she was as well. And I think the prospect of going back was probably, I don't know. I, I never really talked to her about it, to be honest, but I, I could tell by the way she reacted to, the news that I had been on the phone with Brad and so forth, that she was, uh, concerned, I think more than anything, you know, hoping that I made the right decision. Here's a, uh, an interesting question from Trey had WWE went out of business instead of WCW would Eric have brought in Vince McMahon to be an on-screen character. And if so, how would he have been booked? Great question. <clears throat> And, and interesting in the sense that the very first conversation I had with Vince when he called me, and I, I guess it was 2002, uh, about coming to WWE as a character, one of the one of the very first things that he said to me uh, when I when I answered the call and we we started getting into it was, and I'm paraphrasing this, I don't remember the exact words, but it was something to the effect of, "Gee, Eric, I, you know, things turned out the way they turned out," and. I, this was Vince now, I would like to think that had it turned out differently, that you would have reached out to me at some point with an opportunity to, to get back into business. And that was what, when he, and it was one of the things he said to me right off the bat. And it was probably at, in that moment after hearing him say that, that in my mind, although I wasn't thinking it consciously, but subconsciously I'd probably already made up my mind I was going to go to work for him because it was such a an elegant and professional way to approach the situation that it made me respect the hell out of him instantly. And after I got done with that phone call and I, you know, I knew I was going to, to go to work for him, I actually thought about that for a little while. And I asked myself, what, what would I have done? You know, and it's hard for me to, to live in that kind of frame of mind. You know, I don't, I don't spend it as you know, we've talked about this before. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about the past, which is one of the reasons sometimes I have a hard time remembering details of it because it just, you know, once I live a day and it's, it's over, I'm, I'm thinking about the next day. I'm not thinking about the one that just passed, but you know, occasionally I think about, wow, what if, this would have happened or that would have happened. And I, I would like to think, I can't honestly say to be truthful with myself. I can't honestly say that I would have, you know, made it a point to cut, to, to try to come up with an opportunity to reach out to Vince and make him an offer similar to, to the one that he made me in 2002. But I would like to think I would, 
I would like to think if the situation would have presented itself and there would have been a great idea and there would have been something that we all believed in as an opportunity that would have been good for our business at WCW, probably not unlike the way the discussions probably occurred in WWE when they were debating whether or not to pick up the phone and call me. At some point, I'm guessing, I wasn't in the room, obviously, I'm guessing somebody said, yeah, past is the past, let's give the guy a call because this is something that could work out and could make money for us because there, there was an opportunity that presented itself. And I would like to think that I would have been mature enough and professional enough and elegant enough to at least pick up the phone and make that phone call the way that Vince McMahon made it to me. Now, would I have done it? I don't know. Oh, if come I'm, on. If, you, I'm to, if I'm totally honest about it, I don't know if I would have or not. Yeah. I, I would just like, to th I would like to think it. The Eric Bischoff that was leaving, uh, you know, braggy voicemails, he's booking that dude to come get thrown into a trash can. I mean, or a dumpster or, you know, have a drinking contest with one of the talents and vomit on TV and make out with Laurie and all the stuff that you had to do. Right. Maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> dude you just crossed the line and, okay. now, now here's the funny part of that you know i like getting thrown in the in the garbage truck that was my idea no you know, i don't, i'm just busting balls about how silly some of your on-screen stuff was and i know you know in a room of ideas there's no such thing as a bad idea and eventually everybody landed on some pretty entertaining creative but when you really look through the 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 rigors he puts you through on TV, it's pretty fucking hysterical to think about the opposite of that happening on Nitro. I, you know, as you were giving, you know, going through that list of crazy shit that I did when you said, you don't have a Vince McMahon making out with your wife, Lori, that I'm now I'm trying to picture that, but I'm trying to picture the look on my wife's face when I said, Hey, Lori, I've got an idea. Right. I'm going to have Vince McMahon break into our house in Arizona, sneak in the back door. <laughs> And he's gonna he's gonna find you alone in your office, and he's gonna hold your arm behind your back, and, he, and he's gonna kind of make it look like he's he's threatening you, and then he's gonna lay a big one on you, and you're gonna embrace him, uh, and pretend you like it. Uh, Maybe not. Uh, that would have been a hard call. <laughs> <laughs> it's just God. We sometimes forget the silliness that happens in wrestling. Sometimes you know this show is always so serious, but then when you Look back on some of that stuff. It was a good time. It was, you know, and I got to say that, you know, and I, again, perception is a funny thing, but, you know, so many people thought, oh, they're just bringing Eric back. They're going to humiliate him. They're going to embarrass him. They're going to do this to him. They're going to do that to him. And they put me in a lot of situations where I guess if from the outside, one might think I was embarrassed, but to, if anybody thinks that I was embarrassed to, you know, play a character on TV that was getting into a drinking contest with Stone Cold Steve Austin and ended up drinking so much beer that I threw up. If anybody thinks that I thought that was embarrassing, let me be really fucking clear to you right now on this show. I had a blast. I love doing that stuff. If anybody thinks that, you know, me being thrown in a garbage truck, you know, my last night on the show was embarrassing for me, let me correct your thinking. I love that idea. I thought it was a great way to go out, no pun intended. So a lot of that stuff that people think was designed to embarrass me right. didn't. I had a blast doing it. I would have written it had I had the opportunity. It's fun stuff. 
Uh, and wrestling should be fun. This product should be entertaining. It should make you laugh. It should make you, you know, go, holy crap, I can't believe they're doing this stuff. I mean, look at the silly stuff that Vince made his own daughter do. Right. Made her take a stink face for crying out loud from Rikishi. Come on. Look at the stuff that Vince did to himself. And he wrote the stuff, <laughs> you know. He wet his pants on national television for crying out loud because Stone Cold Steve Austin put a toy gun to his head, pulled the trigger, and a little flag came out and said, bang. <laughs> I mean, come on. It's just, it's stuff that, yeah, he, he he did that. He asked me to do those things, but he also asked his family to do some of those. He, made, he asked his wife to make out with me. I'm sure she wasn't thrilled about it either. Or his daughter. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I, mean, I don't know why this is funny, but it is. Oh, it should be fun and it should be funny. Well, and that's the thing, like, you know, behind the scenes as, as maybe some of that stuff sounds humiliating, actually coming up with the idea and going through it and filming it and, and pulling it together, that's gotta be a fucking blast to do. Like that just seems like something everybody would have enjoyed, but it is fun to think about Vince McMahon on nitro. Uh, Josh Kuhn wants to know how would Eric describe his relationship with Vince McMahon? And did he ever think at the height of WCW, he would have any sort of relationship of any kind with Vince? That's a great question. And I mean, my relationship now, I, I have to say this, and I know this is going to sound like I'm pandering and, you know, because I work here and I work with Vince and I, I know how this is going to sound, but I'm going to, I'm just going to be honest and I'm going to say it anyway. Um, you know, in WCW, I had so many people that would come over from WWE and of course everybody that came over and, and, and this is just human nature, right? They would come over and they would tell me basically what they thought I wanted to hear. And they would, you know, which, which means there was a lot of negative things that people would say about, you know, Vince or what was the WWF at the time and all of that kind of thing. And I always took it with a grain of salt because I, I knew what it was. These are people that are coming in and they want to kind of ingratiate their, themselves into the new company and develop a great relationship with me and the other people in, on, uh, on the staff and so forth. So, of course, they would come over and they would tell you all the th negative things they think or they thought they that we wanted to hear um but even with all of that you know one of the things that i would hear consistently was yeah yeah vince mcmahon is this he's that he's this he's that all the negative things they think i wanted to hear like i said but they would always kind of end it but he is kind of a genius and i thought well you know, come on. These are just guys that are trying to keep the door open in case they've got to go back. You know, and I, or I would read uh, oftentimes things that people would say about Vince and, and talk about what a genius he was and, and that type of thing. And again, I would just always take it with a grain of salt and think, well, these are guys who are just trying to keep the door open, which is, you know, good business. I get it. And and now that, you know, when, and when I worked with WWE as a talent, I never really worked closely at all with Vince. Um, occasionally, if we had you know, scenes to do together and things like that. But I had very few, you know, one-on-one -on -one type of conversations with Vince, just a small handful, to be honest about it. Now that I'm working here, and I've been here for a couple months now, and I'm working fairly closely with him, um, he is one of the most fascinating people I've ever worked with. Um, and I don't throw the term genius around lightly, because that means different things to different people, but... I think 
Vince in his own way is definitely a genius of sorts, however you want to define that. And that doesn't mean that he has all the answers. In my opinion, he doesn't have all the, all the right answers to every situation. Um, I think even Vince would recognize that he's made some bad decisions creatively or otherwise uh, throughout his career. But there are times, honestly, you know, in, in the middle of a meeting, he'll say something or he'll look at a story or he'll look at a character and he'll pick out something that seems so small, um, a detail, either in a story or in a character or a way of presenting a character that seems so small when you first hear it. But then as you think about it and you start expanding on that, you realize that it makes all the difference in the world. And I, I, I find him to be like I said, I hate to throw the word genius around because it means different things to different people, but I think he is one of the most fascinating people I've ever had the opportunity to work with. I, I like the fact that he's very direct. You know, you know where you stand with, with Vince. I've always appreciated that in anybody. You know, Harvey Schiller was much the same way. You know, you always knew you, you knew where you stood with, with Harvey, and, and Vince McMahon is very similar in that respect. There, there's no ambiguity <laughs> when it comes to, to dealing with him, and sometimes that's uncomfortable. Um, and, and, and most of the time for someone like me, I, I respect it and appreciate it. So, um, that's kind of the contrast, I guess, if you will, what I thought Vince McMahon was like versus what having worked with him now for a couple months has, has led me to, to see or to believe. Uh, and in terms of, you know, did I ever think in WCW I'd have any kind of a working relationship? Oh, hell no. Come on. You know, I, I would have. I would have probably bet that at some point in time, if he had the opportunity, he'd run me over if he saw me on the street uh, or have somebody else do it. <laughs> but uh, I, I certainly never thought I'd have a working relationship with him, especially one that I, I enjoy as much as I do right now. Another great question. Interesting question here that I don't think we've ever talked about from elegantly wasted. He says, is it true that during the nitro winning streak, you used to leave gloating messages on Vince's answering machine on Tuesday mornings? After the ratings came out, mm, I didn't do it on a regular basis. I think I may have done it <laughs> once or twice. <laughs> oh, give me an example of what you think you might have said. Oh God, I can't. I, I, I'd be making shit up off the top of my head, and my, I'm too beat up to do that right now. But I, I do. Re I think I recall doing it once or twice. That is maybe the most Eric Bischoff thing we've ever talked about here on the show. Uh, well, you know, and, and, and it's, it wasn't, and this is just the way I think, okay, and or the way I used to think, I should say. It it wasn't because I was gloating. It it it, it was because I wanted to get under his skin, and I I knew that if, I believed I shouldn't say I knew because I didn't know Vince at the time, but based on things that I had heard about Vince. Hang on, in the uh, background, is that Scott Steiner? Making an entrance into your room right now. Oh no, I'm I'm in downtown Los Angeles and I think is there's either a parade or Grand Theft Auto a, seventeen. Yeah, Grand Theft Auto. There may be a police chase going on outside my, my hotel room. But I'd always, you know, heard that, you know, Vince was, you know, volatile and had a heck of a temper and all that kind of thing. And I thought, well, you know, what better way to keep him off his game than by driving him crazy with this kind of stupid shit? whether it was giving away finishes or, you know, leaving those kinds of messages on his, and like I said, I think I did it once or twice, um, that I recall at least, 
uh, and, you know, there was other things that I think I did. You know, I we we put up a billboard, you know, advertising a pay per view, and did it very close to the Titan Towers, so that when everybody drove to work every morning, they could look at the advertisement for our pay per view. We we didn't really think that that billboard would necessarily drive any pay per view business, but I thought, yeah, it's a good way to get under the guy's skin, and it was really all just to keep him off balance. I figured the more irritated I could keep him and the more off balance I could get him, the less likely it was that he'd come up with some good ideas to come back after me. Now, little did I know, all I was really doing was poking the bear and making him more determined than ever to come back and, and kick our ass, which is ultimately what happened. But at the time, you know, it was kind of like a Sun Tzu art of war thing in my mind where I was just going to do everything I can to keep him off of his best game. And that's really why I did it. I don't know why that's funny to me, but it is. It's such an Eric Bischoff thing. Uh, another question here. Mike Whitaker wants to know when you were in charge of WCW, if WWE had proposed doing a split pay-per-view, would you have considered it? Oh, I think so for sure. Um, now a lot of that depends on the timing early on when I was running WCW before nitro, uh, and even probably after nitro before the NWO, I certainly would have entertained that who, you know, would have been silly not to entertain it. It would have been a great opportunity. Uh, but I think after we kind of gained the traction that we gained in 96, 97, in particular, early 98, it probably wouldn't have been very interesting at that point, but certainly in the you know, 94, 95, early 96, absolutely would have considered it. So the answer is if you were winning, uh, maybe not, but if you were playing ketchup ball, heck yeah, let's do it. Yeah. Said another way. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Listen up. We've got great news. We're excited to announce a new affiliate partnership with fanatics and the WWE shop. It's an easy way to support your favorite podcast shop, official WWE gear and apparel by using our special URL shopwrestlingmerch.com. That's shopwrestlingmerch.com. Or if you're watching along with us on YouTube, just hit that QR code that's up on the screen right now and check out the description below for the link. We'll have it up on all of our socials as well, but you can shop with confidence for your favorite WWE superstar tees, hoodies, caps, championship belts, and more with the WWE shop. And don't forget to use our special link shopwrestlingmerch.com. Not only do we get some great deals and some great swag, but it's also an easy way to support the show. That's shopwrestlingmerch.com. Let's uh let's let's agree to uh to come back to some of the overarching stuff and let's let's dig into the news and notes leading to the show and then we'll put a bow on it at the end. Meltzer reported at the time that Vince Russo uh, and he was sounding fairly desperate in the process. According to Meltzer lashed out at criticism of his booking and blamed WCW standards and practices for the fact that the ratings haven't improved since he arrived. He did all of this on an appearance on WCW live. And you and I recently discovered together uh, or got the bad news together that, uh, Bob Ryder recently passed away. Ryder was a pioneer in a lot of ways for wrestling on the internet. And WCW live was, was one of those innovations. He and Jeremy Borash did a phenomenal job there. He's got Russo on as a guest and he says, Russo claims that, uh, the ratings haven't fallen and that everything to this point was to put things in place for a big angle at Starcade and the next night with the recreation of the NWO Russo blamed 
standards and practices for not allowing him to have Roddy Piper call Rhonda Singh fat, no longer allowing Ed to mimic Jim Ross's Bell's palsy, and not even allowing Buzzkill to burn incense on the air. Meltzer would say, none of which, one way or the other, would have meant even a blip when it comes to the ratings. Russo says that WCW has to decide if they want a squeaky clean show or ratings, but they can't have both. And he said he was promised certain leeway when he came in, and for the first six weeks, everything was fine. But once the heat came from sponsors, the rules changed. He said people in WCW have been trying to stab him in the back. He claimed people in the company are saying that the problem isn't standards and practices. It's just that the shows he's been writing hasn't been very, haven't been very good. And he claimed that those people were doing the same thing that Jim Ross, Jim Cornette, and Bruce Pritchard did to him in the WWF. He lashed out at all the critics, Meltzer in particular, with name calling. And a lot of people would assume that he's working an angle here. Russo says he's going to gauge his success by internet feedback and crowd response. <laughs> and, uh, among the ideas that he talked about on the show were to bring Lenny lane and Lodi back under the name standards and practices with crew cuts and glasses and have them play nerdy characters. He also talked about bringing back Jim Helwig as a full timer. And he says he's even talking with Bruno Sammartino and maybe he could join Zabisco, Orndorff, Anderson and uh the piper team to feud with russo as the traditionalists who hate what russo's done to wrestling he talked about wanting to bring back randy savage but said there's a contract situation that's out of his hands and he talks about how jeff jarrett will be a main eventer starting early in the year and he also claims if he left or was let go by wcw he would never go back to the wwf because he could never work with vince mcmahon for another day a lot to unpack from his appearance here on wcw live Let's try to break it down bit by bit. People saying, you know, Hey, uh, the writing hasn't been very good. And he thinks <laughs> those people are stabbing him in the back, much like Ross Cornette and Bruce did. How does that read to you as someone who self admits, uh, you weren't the biggest Russo fan. I mean, you have to know Vince Rousseau in order to appreciate the depths of his delusion. If you don't know Vince Russo, you can't possibly begin to understand how twisted and in his own way, narcissistic he is. Um, he's like the fucking Andrew Como of professional wrestling. I, 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 you know, I don't know what to say you know, was standards and practices, you know, an issue? It was for me. I never even heard of standards and practices and Terry Tingle um, until sometime in 1998. And I've talked about it before, you know, I, I remember her coming. I think we talked about it in the last show we did. I talked about Terry Tingle coming into my office and telling me that one wrestler can't call an, another wrestler stupid because it may be offensive to some people with learning disabilities. I get that. That's life. You know, I don't like it necessarily. I think, you know, when, and what always became frustrating for me, and then I'll, I promise I'll stay on track. What became frustrating for me, and, and in a way still is, is the kind of double standard that exists, you know, in entertainment. You know, you can do things in a scripted environment. 
you can call someone stupid. You can call someone ugly. You can call someone fat. You can call someone whatever you want to call them as a part of a story and a script and building your character. But, the, but wrestling, for whatever reason, was always in this kind of funky gray area. Even though it was scripted, even it was all performance-based, it wasn't reality, it wasn't a sport. But for whatever reason, people, especially in Turner, at this point, now this is Time Warner AOL. This wasn't Turner Broadcasting, you know, pre-AOL, pre-Time Warner. This was Time Warner and even more so AOL set this new kind of bar or this new standard where professional wrestling had to be much more politically correct before politically correct was a thing than any other form of entertainment. You know, you could have flamboyantly gay people in a sitcom. That's okay. But if you had somebody that was flamboyantly gay and you pointed it out and made fun of it or, or use it as a, a basis for humor, even if it was self-deprecating humor, you know, from the character that was portraying a flamboyantly gay person. Well, that way you could do that. You could do it on a sitcom. You could do it in drama. But you couldn't do it in wrestling. You know, things that were okay in other forms of entertainment were not okay in wrestling. And that was a very hard thing for me to try to adjust to. And I still think it's unfair in, in some respects. I watch scripted television now and I think, could you possibly get away with that story or a version of that story? in professional wrestling? And the answer is no, because even today, professional wrestling, for whatever reason, I still don't understand. And I'm sure there is one, but for whatever reason, I haven't been, you know, privy to, or nobody's explained to me, there is a still a double standard today. And it, it was true. And I'm sure that was frustrating for, for Russo to a degree, but let's be honest. Let's look back at some of the things that Russo did from the time he was hired in September, I think, or October, and, and, and the things that we're seeing even on this show. Russo got away with a lot more in, in terms of the overtly sexual kind of silliness. And, and in this case, we saw a lot of, you know, mixed match, you know, mixed sex matches and phys physicality on women and things like that, that I, you know, could not have gotten away with. You might've been able to get a bump in or two, or, but, but matches, that would have never happened. Uh, under my watch, not because I necessarily wouldn't have wanted to do, do it, but because it wouldn't have been allowed. By 1998, that wouldn't have been allowed. So Russo got away with a lot more during this time period than I was able to get away with in 98 or 99. Um, so I, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't buy it. And, and while some of Russo's claims during that interview that you read back to me I can kind of relate to um, with regard to, you know, what Turner at that point, AOL Time Warner, what they, Time Warner really, what they wanted out of a wrestling show. I can understand why Russo was very frustrated coming from the WWE where, you know, you only had one guy to answer to. And, you know, he was walking women around on fucking in, in a dog collar, you know, in your underwear in bra and panty matches were, you know, the, the match of the week. And coming to AOL, Time Warner, th that he couldn't get away with that. So I understand his frustration. But all anybody, look, if you're a Vince Russo supporter, if anybody is listening to this, and I know there are a few because I, you know, they reach out to me on social media sometimes. All you need to do is go back and look at this show. This show, this is when Russo still had quite a bit of latitude. 
This show is all Vince Russo. This is out of the mind of Vince Russo and Ed Ferrara. And if any of you who still support and buy into, you know, the Vince Russo story, if you can go back and watch the show and find any socially redeeming value, the same standard that is used to determine the undeterminable, undeterminable, which is what is porn? Well, porn is anything that doesn't have socially redeeming value, sexual material. If you can go back and look at this show and find anything that has any, from a wrestling perspective, socially redeeming value, i.e. entertainment, then I want to hear about it. One thing, one thing, even by accident, usually the talent is good enough to be able to even figure out a way to make something entertaining and worthwhile in spite of a bad head of creative. In this case, despite the fact that there were some massively talented people on this show and some that weren't, that were Vince Russo proteges that were drinking his Kool-Aid and were only on the show because they kissed his ass. And, and Vince Russo was trying to, you know, build his power base within WCW by being the guy that was going to give all the underdogs a shot. All those talented, young, fresh talent. How many times have we heard that bullshit? All this young, fresh talent that were being held down by the, you know, the veterans and the guys like Hogan and Savage and Sting and Luger and Blah, 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 blah. And Vince Russo was going to be the pipe piper that we're going to lead all this young, fresh, exciting talent to the promised land. Well, the young, fresh, promising talent didn't have it. But by surrounding himself with that lack of talent, and, he's, and look, these people were nice people. I'm sure they had goals and dreams and aspirations. And I'm sure they worked hard to get at least attention enough to be able to put on a show. I'm not taking anything away from the talent, although it probably sounds like I am. I'm not, but they weren't ready for prime time. And this entire show, aside from the fact that some of the right, some of the creative and the, the real matchmaking process, not just the storytelling, but you know, to see a guy like Dean Malenko, Dean Malenko trying to have a match with Hacksaw Jim Duggan, who was in this 40-pound janitor suit. It was just criminal. I wanted to call Dean Malenko and apologize to him this morning for not having the experience and the strength of character or the vision or whatever it is I didn't have or the combination thereof to kind of find a solution to the problems that I was having in 98, 99, instead of drawing a line and saying a picket fight with people that were way up the food chain for me, hoping that it would come out well. It was just horrifying. Who would think that? Who would think that was a good idea? Putting Dean Malenko in the, oh, let's try. I know, let's resurrect another faction because, well, the NWO works, so I can do it too. It sucked. It sucked. Dean Malenko, oh, no, by the way, what did we have in a cruiserweight match that opened the show? Evan Courageous and Medusa. I love Medusa. She's a longtime family friend. I've known Medusa, and I've been friends with her since 1987. I, I respect her husband and like her husband. I respect Medusa and like Medusa, but that match was fucking horrible. 
Well, why would you have a cruiserweight opening cruiserweight match with Evan Courageous and Medusa? Oh, I know why. Because Dean Malenko was trying to have a match with Hacksaw Jim Duggan. Piss me off. It is worth mentioning, you know, in the heyday of the cruiserweight division, you know, normally if you're, oh man, it's Starcade, they're opening up with a cruiserweight match. I mean, do you, do you remember what the opening match for Starcade 1996 was? I do not. It's Ultimo Dragon and Dean Malenko. That was that was for the cruiserweight title. Starcade '97. It's Eddie Guerrero and Dean Malenko. Now it's Evan Courageous and Medusa. Fucking Russo. If he was closer, I'd drive to his house and kick him right in the fucking teeth. <laughs> well, honest I to God. And at this advanced stage in my life, I'd have to make sure he was sitting down before I tried to kick him in the teeth, but I'd get him there. This is just... <laughs> That's self-deprecating humor, boys and girls. And there ain't going to be no Jean-Claude Van Damme shit going on in my life, but man, alive. Oh, wait a minute. You know, when, uh, let's go back to Russo's appearance here on WCW live. Um, I, I, I don't know what, how to respond to this report that he's blaming standards and practices for the low ratings by saying, well, we couldn't call Ron to sing fat and Ed Farrar couldn't mimic JR's Bell's palsy anymore. And we didn't even have buzzkill burn incense. Do you think those would have been <laughs> major moments for nitro to, I mean, if Roddy yeah. would have called Ron to sing fat, I mean, everybody would have changed the channel from raw. That switched over to this. And if Buzzkill lit that incense, dude, I mean, that, that was a t-shirt opportunity. That was a watershed moment for WCW that's lost forever now. Yeah. And, and it certainly had, those were the important things that Russo wanted to do that he wasn't able to do, which is why he specified them and made a point of talking about them. And to your point, ludicrous, just insane, delusional. That's the word delusional. And again, Unless you know Vince Russo, unless you've been forced to work with Vince Russo and have the misfortune of working with him, the depth of his delusion is something that will escape the average person. You cannot imagine it. But this is a perfect example. Forget about the fact that there's no story to anything that he's doing on this particular pay-per-view. Well, with the exception of Bret Hart and Bill Goldberg, I'll, 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 I'll give that. But the rest of this was a just a disaster of, of a creative effort. That's what was killing WCW even more after I left. Why do you, here's the other thing, you know, Connor, you hear me say this sometimes offline, you know, when we're not doing a podcast, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated as to, you know, why, what's the motivation? What were, what was the thought process? What motivated somebody to take a certain action, whatever it may be, and after watching this show and, you know, waiting, you know, to connect with you and Stan for this podcast, I, I was outside of my driveway with my dog kind of looking out over the lake. And I was thinking to myself, why, why did Brad Siegel call me back hmm. after firing me? Well, it wasn't Brad that did it, but you know what I mean? Why did Turner bring me back? Tim Warner. Why did they bring me back? Now I know. I didn't know as much. I mean, I had an idea. 
But after watching this, I'm surprised it took him to the middle or end of January to pick up the phone and make the call. Because this was, this show is Vince Russo. For all of you supporters out there, you people, you 12 people that listen to whatever the fuck he does on his podcast. Or, I don't think he can even podcast because I don't think anybody will actually carry his show. It's that bad. And he's that bad. But if he does have some sort of platform out there and you watch it, you think he's actually a talented dude and you believe, you know, any percentage of his delusional bullshit, just go watch this show. This is Vince Russo. This is peak Vince Russo. Peak performance. He, he does still have, and I know, I know part, of, part of this is just you trying to be entertaining, and I appreciate that, but he, he does have a, a, a real following. I mean, he, he has, he has fans. He has a platform. Uh, he has a- idiots. He has people that don't know any better. He has people that love to drink the Vince Russo Kool-Aid and he is a charming guy. He yes, can sell he his ass off. And if you're the type of person who has no perspective, no real understanding of anything, no willingness to understand anything, no willingness to be critical, then you're going to be a fan of Vince Russo's. You know, because he can be an entertaining, charming dude, but he's a fraud from, from at the deepest core of who he is. He's a fraud. Everything about him is a fraud. It's just, yeah, whatever. You know, if you're, you're a supporter of Vince Russo, God bless you. You know, I would be careful about driving a car by yourself or engaging in anything that requires any level of thought or analysis because clearly you're not capable of functioning in a real world, but if sitting around listening to Vince Russo's take on life or wrestling <laughs> is your cup of tea that just, you know, God bless you. You know, uh, it's clear now, uh, the direction of the show today, I, I guess we're going to, we're going to be, beating up, <laughs> we're going to be beating up on Vince a little bit. I, I, I want to state clearly for the record. I've always had great interactions with Vince and uh, to your point, he is a charming guy and he is a likable guy, but also to your point, I never worked with him. So I don't know, you know, what those challenges must be like and, and how that dynamic might change, but just as a casual, um, in passing friendship relationship, Hey, how are you buddy? An acquaintance, if you will, uh, he could not have been more pleasant to me. Um, yeah, a lot of con artists are like that. Okay. I say all that to say this. Some, the thing that jumped out at me the most in this whole report from WCW live. And yes, I was having a little fun with no one gave a shit about any of those things that were cut. He was just complaining and wanted something to complain about. And I get that. And by the way, uh, we've all done that. I've done that. You've done that on this show. Sometimes you feel like you get painted into a corner and you're, Hey, this isn't all my fault. And, and certainly he didn't come into a good situation. Uh, he came into a bad situation, was asked to pull the nose up. And by that point, a lot of people would say it was too far gone. And I'm sure that's what Russo defenders are going to say. That's maybe a talk for another day. But when I read this, I thought he just, he doesn't get it. He said he promised, he was promised certain leeway when he came in for the first six weeks, everything was fine. But once the heat came from sponsors, the rules changed and the idea that he felt like now, bro, you promised me, you gave me your word. This is a business and the business here is selling tickets or selling pay-per-views, but that's all secondary. Cause that's old school wrestling. That's all secondary to, we got to have a television product. This is a television company. How does a television company make money? Some people would say ratings, but.
If your ratings go up or down, what does that matter without sponsors? We've got to be able to sell it to somebody. So the reason you want more people watching is so you have more revenue coming in from sponsorship. I can't sell the show if the sponsors are pissed off. So even if you have great ratings, if you've alienated all of the sponsors, which at times WWE did where they had, you know, enough sponsor I mean, enough eyeballs to in theory, have a beer sponsor or a car sponsor. They never came around because they were turned off. WCW wants to avoid that. They understand first and foremost, television is not a line item for us. We are a television company. The idea that he didn't know he couldn't piss off the sponsors is like, what? It's a TV because he doesn't know anything about the television business. Look, I mean, there's, he never has, he's never understood. You know, this was Vince Russo looked at WCW and the opportunity that he conned himself into. He looked at WCW as his own little personal playpen. It was his, he, he could live out his fantasy of, of, of what he thought wrestling should be. That's what he thought he was going to be able to do. And look, the product is what the product or the product was what the product was. And you can argue all day long that WCW was already on a downhill trajectory. And I would agree with that, by the way, I wouldn't, I wouldn't defend or try to, to argue that, that point. I would agree with that point. It was for a lot of, a lot of reasons, but when Vince Russo came in and convinced Brad Siegel and Bill, (laughs) Bill Bush, that he was, he was the guy who was really behind you know, turning WWE around. It was Vince Russo. It wasn't, you know, Vince McMahon. It wasn't anybody else. It was Vince Russo. Um, he convinced people that needed, that wanted to be convinced, that were desperate to be convinced. That's what good con artists do. They take advantage of people who are at a disadvantage. And Brad Siegel and Turner Broadcasting was a disadvantage. What do we try to do? Oh, I know. We'll hire the guy who says he was responsible for turning WWE around. That seems like an easy solution, but Vince Russo had no skill. He had no talent. Now, maybe, maybe, and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to cut Russo a little slack here. Maybe when he was part of a broader, bigger team who could compensate for some of the idiocy and lack of real creative um, skill and instincts, Maybe he was a functional part of a bigger team and worked well in that environment by being that voice that would kind of bring up some of the absurd. And you may have to shit can, you know, 49 of those absurd ideas in order to find some redeeming quality. And I'll give you an example on this particular show. There was one moment in this show. Forget about the main event. We'll talk about that more later. But there was one moment, one moment outside of the main event that I went, hmm, that's pretty good. And that was the moment when, and it was good for me, subjective, matter of opinion. For me, I found it to be really kind of smart creatively, regardless of whether it was Vince Russo's idea or somebody else's, where Sting and Liz were backstage and, you know, Liz was, you know, so, you know, I'll say soliciting, but, you know, convincing Sting that, you know, she was trying to get away from Lex and blah, 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 blah. And she had a can of mace to protect herself. And Sting said, no, take this one. This is the good stuff. And it was a, it was a can of 
string. So when, because he knew, Sting knew within the context of the story that Liz was likely going to turn on him. He didn't really trust her. And when that moment came, she picked up her mace thinking it was the high test stuff and sprayed Sting in the face and it was silly string. I thought, well, you know what? That was pretty creative because it was a seed that was planted and it was almost subtle. It was a very nuanced thing, but it was obvious too. It was a really good balance of, of, of a subtle story seed, but yet making sure the audience saw it. And then it played out at a critical moment in the match. That was good storytelling. And if that was Vince Russo's idea, then that was one example of a pretty good idea, if not a great idea, surrounded by 99 horrible ones. Um, but I don't know. Next question. I'm sorry. I went off into the weeds. I forgot where I was. No, I like when you do that. Did you put Christmas on a credit card? Don't stress out about that extra holiday spending. Savewithconrad.com can help you consolidate all of your high interest rate credit cards into one much lower monthly payment. Savewithconrad.com has helped families just like yours save up to $800 a month. You don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket. And did I mention no payments until March? So don't make saving money a resolution next year. Make it happen today at savewithconrad.com. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson here to tell you a little more about what adfreeshows.com is all about. Get early ad-free access to more than a dozen of your favorite wrestling podcasts every single week, starting at just nine bucks. That's less than 20 cents an episode each month. And yes, you can listen to them all directly through Apple Podcasts or your regular podcast apps. How easy is that? Ad-Free Shows also has thousands of hours worth of bonus content and docu-series like Title Chase, Eric Fires Back, Conversations with Conrad, and The Insiders. Plus new series like The Book with David Crockett, Monday Mailbags with Mike Chioda and Nick Patrick, and a whole lot more. And you want to talk about early, you can't get any earlier than listening to the shows live. You can be a part of the live studio audience as we record the podcast. Plus, ride shotgun alongside your favorite childhood heroes for live watch-alongs, Q&As, and other interactive experiences every single month. Come on now, see for yourself what thousands of other wrestling fans from around the world have discovered. That adfreeshows.com is the best value in wrestling. Check it out today. And hey, when you do, the first week is completely free. Adfreeshows.com. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.